Uh, we're in John chapter number two. We covered the first 51 verses of John 1, and you've, we've learned so much about Jesus already and who he is and what he's about, and he's just about to begin his public ministry. Jesus is going to have this uh, inauguration event where public ministry is launched, and there's so much to learn from this passage. So John chapter number two, we're going to read 12 verses. 12 verses, you can hang with me for this, and uh, it'll take us a minute or two, but let's look at it. It says, The third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. We'll unpack that later, but I'll say this much. Guys, if, if you're married and you're looking for a life verse, that's not the one. Pick a different one. Um, that's, uh, it, it seems like a brush off. It seems a bit cryptic, admittedly, right? Um, but we'll understand it a bit later on. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. What is a firkin? Here's six pots. Each of them have two or three firkins. A firkin is roughly 10 gallons. So you're talking about a representation of 120 to 150 gallons. So this, this, is, this is a lot of liquid here. And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says in verse 7, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now and bear to the governor of the feast, and they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water they knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. Well, before I begin to unpack this text, I do want to just make a few opening remarks. Uh, first, I will say this. This story, and many others like it, prove the validity and the veracity of the gospel accounts. What I, what I mean by that is this is a familiar story, but there is a certain oddness about it. Like there honestly is a bit of weirdness in, inside of this story. And if you were looking to make up a savior, looking to make up a hero, looking to make up a guy who became God, then the last thing you would do is invent a story like this. You know, it's an awesome solution to a catering disaster is what it is. And this is not, this, this is the last thing that you would put or write unless it actually happened. And it was just true and you were reporting what happened. So this, this story, and many of those like it, prove that the gospel accounts are not, they're not fiction, they're not legend. There's, there's, you read the conversation with Jesus and his mother, there's no way you would invent that. There's absolutely no way you would invent that. Second, I will say, if you're looking for a dissertation on alcohol this morning, you won't get it, and I'll disappoint you. Uh, there's, far, there's far too much gold inside of this passage to really get bogged down by hashing out all of the biblical details on alcohol. Now, that being said, in case you think that I'm dodging the point, I do hope by, by summertime to have actually a 40-minute or so sermon that is specifically on the Bible's view of alcohol and what it says. So I'll, I'll hit that eventually and in the near future, just not today. I, I want to really get to the core of what John chapter 2 is trying to say. Uh, lastly, I believe this text is far more profound and far more weighty than most people give it credit for. And by that I mean, as I studied, as I listened to other sermons, as I read some commentaries, I found some things that were true that people would draw out of this text, but I felt 
were just cheapening it. That it would just be, you know, Jesus meets practical needs. They had a need, he met it. You know, he'll meet your practical needs. Or, or Jesus does miracles. Uh, he suspends the laws of nature. This isn't a cheap party trick. He does miracles. Those things are true, and, and we'll touch on those a bit. But there's more to this passage than that. And, and here's why I say that. I'm not just inventing that. I think the Bible tells us that. Look at verse number 11, how this ends. And it ends almost rather abruptly. It's this conversation with the, with, the, with the feast master and then with the bridegroom. And then just kind of, boop, it just ends. It's, it's done. But it tells you, verse 11, this beginning of miracles that Jesus and Cain of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. So at the end of the day, what happened in the story was showing forth the glory of God and it was reinforcing faith of the disciples. So when, when it's all said and done, the true heart of this text is to show the glory of God in a really unique way and to give you a window into the glorious nature of God and to cultivate, and I would even say reinforce, faith. Like that's the goal of this. And on top of all that, this is the inauguration of Jesus's ministry. So Jesus is about to roll out his public ministry. This, this is not warm up, all right? This isn't practice. This isn't layup lines. Jesus isn't beta testing his powers. Jesus isn't thinking, no, I, I think it's time. I wonder if this will happen. Let me just see if I can pull something off. Oh, great, it did. Now I'll begin public ministry. No, this is the launch of Jesus' public ministry. Now think in practical ways. When you are launching something, when you are rolling something out, maybe it's a, it's a new product line at your business. Maybe it's a new initiative. Maybe it's, it's some, uh, maybe new business. You start a restaurant or, or whatever it may be. You put a lot of work and a lot of planning and a lot of preparation into your launch day, do you not? And you want on that launch day for your signage and your verbiage and your message and your product to be crystal clear. And you want it to really encapsulate the epitome of what you're about when you launch something. And, and this is so true of Jesus in this moment as he's going to launch public ministry. This is going to get the, the quintessential essence of what Jesus is about is encapsulated in John chapter number two. And it's, it's relatively easy to miss. So with that being said, here's the goal this morning. I want you this morning to really see the glory of God. I want you this morning to really uh, have your faith grow. I want you this morning to get the essence of what Jesus' ministry is all about. Now, I'll say this, okay? I'll, I'll, be, I'll just be honest. You're gonna have to hang with me today. Normally, I will, I'll put it bottom shelf and I'll, I'll make you laugh a little bit and we'll have a good time and I'll try to make it really easy for you to stick with me. Today, I'm gonna ask you to work at it a little bit. There, you're not gonna come up for air the whole sermon, okay? There's just gonna be one thing after another after another. There are so many threads and truths running through this passage that it is, it's almost mind-blowing and, and to really give you the essence of what this is about, you're gonna have to work at it a little bit, so I think you can do it, okay? Who can do it? Raise your hand if you can do it. All right, most of you can. If you did, if, who can't do it? Keep your hand down. <laughs> I don't even know what that meant, but okay, here we go. I'm gonna give you six irrefutable truths about Jesus, and this passage is just loaded with gold. So the first two will be longer than the last four. We're gonna get through the first two, and you're gonna think, how long is this sermon gonna be? But we'll hit the last four quickly. So here we go. Truth number one, Jesus brings the festival joy. 
So here's what's happening in this passage. There's a wedding that's happening. A wedding feast in first century Judaism is about seven days long, sometimes 10, sometimes even two weeks. But when you got married, this was a long celebration. The groom and the groom's family was responsible to provide the food and to provide the drink for all of the community and all of the guests for the entire week. All right, so, so those of you that are, maybe you planned a wedding, you're currently planning a wedding, and you're stressing about the one meal that is for 200 people, try feeding, you know, a tribe for a week. This is a massive undertaking, but that's the way weddings were in this day and age. So uh, Jesus' mother is there. This is probably very close to their local community. Jesus is invited. His disciples are invited. And you find that they ran out of wine early. Now, I referred to it earlier as a catering disaster, but it's honestly a bit more than that. In the first century, you live in a shame culture. So we do not live in a shame culture in America. For example, if you went to a birthday party and you somehow forgot your gift or the gift did not arrive in time and you showed up without a gift, but 10 other people had a gift, you would feel maybe a, a little bit dumb and, and feel like you wish you had a gift, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. Someone may even say to you, why don't you bring a gift? And you may say, you know what? It's showing up two days from now. You know, it'll get to them eventually. Or ah, I forgot. Or you may even say, none of your business. You know, mind your own. Get away from me. I mean, it, that's kind of our culture, right? A shame culture is different. There are certain cultural expectations. And if you don't meet the cultural obligations and the cultural expectations, there's a lot of shame put on you. And that's a really, really big deal. I experienced this personally in October when I went to Vanuatu. Vanuatu is a shame culture where if you don't meet the cultural expectations, then, then it's, it's a big deal. And I was uh, a bit taken back uh, multiple occasions while we were there. While I'm around some, some guys that are there that are, that are locals, they're called Nevans, they're, they're local people. And, and many of them are bigger than me, older than me, stronger than me. But something would happen that was kind of a, a, a cultural, you know, faux pas. It's something that you don't normally do or maybe didn't go the way it was planned. And they would point it out and these men would kind of put their head on their shoulder and get this almost sheepish grin and be shamed by it and kind of turn away and be super bashful or shamed by someone, you know, saying you shouldn't have texted them at dinner or something like that. And I was a bit taken back by kind of how that culture works. It is so foreign to us. But in this day and age, the fact that you're running out of wine at your marriage feast is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And Mary comes to Jesus. We don't know if Mary and Jesus are related to these people or not exactly. But she comes to him and she asks Jesus to meet the need. And there's a conversation that we'll unpack later. But for the time being, we'll just leave it at this. Jesus, when it's all said and done, meets the need. Right? They need wine. We're out. He gives them 120 to 150 gallons of it. He meets the need. What does it teach us that Jesus is meeting the need? That's an important question. You have in this, in this text the governor of the feast. Now this is, another th this is why this is such a tough sermon because I have to give you the cultural understanding that's so different than what we have. Governor of the feast, the closest thing we would have would be, would be a master of ceremony or an MC. Uh, that's, that's not a true comparison, but it's as close as I can get. The governor of the feast, it was his job to make the party a party. It was his job to keep the festival going. It was his job to make sure that kind of the, the details and the organization were cared for and to make sure that everything was running smoothly and everyone was having a good time for a week while they celebrated this wedding. And you find that the governor of the feast, who's responsible for the joy, who's responsible for the festival, who's responsible for the feast, is supposed to keep this feast going and make it great, but who actually makes the feast great and who keeps the feast going? It's not the governor of the feast, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one that actually brings the joy to the festival, brings the life to the party, brings the, everything that's supposed to be there, 
into that. Now this teaches you an important truth that is just kind of sprinkled all through Scripture. That God and your relationship with Him, God does not intend to be a cosmic killjoy, and He does not intend for you to have a life that is lived inside of Jesus, that is just filled with anxiety, filled with a lack of joy, filled with wondering, what does He want from me? What am I supposed to do? He actually wants to bring salvation, and with that salvation, wants to bring festival, wants to bring joy, wants to bring good news to your heart, wants to bring something grand and awesome. This is why you would find passages like Isaiah 25 that Revelation actually echoes and tells us a bit more about it. But you find in Isaiah 25 that at the end of time, the Bible tells us that there's going to be in this last day a feast that is filled with awesome food, with awesome drink, and death will be swallowed up and tears will be wiped away that literally at the end of history, history is consummated by the Lord driving and corralling all of the universe on a cosmic scale to a feast, to a celebration, to usher in eternity and to have a festival and to have joy, that that's like big picture macro level what God is after and what it is all funneling to is this giant feast. But even on a micro level, inside of your own heart, this is supposed to be the case with Jesus. The Bible will oftentimes use imagery for our relationship with Jesus that is sensory imagery. For example, Psalm 34 will tell you, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Peter will tell you, taste and know that God is gracious. You would find in Ephesians 1 that Paul prays that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened or opened. Ephesians 3 tells us that we should know with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the depth and the height of the love of Christ. And that actually passes knowledge. Why would, why would the Bible do that? You know God is good, but I want you to taste that he is good. You know God is gracious, I want you to taste God is gracious. You, you know about his power, but I want you to see his power. You know about his love, but I want you to grasp, I want you to comprehend, I want you to get his love. Why would it, why would it do that? This experiential language of taste, see, touch, feel. If, if you had a friend that was born blind and they asked you, is blue like the taste of water? Is red like the sound of a bell? Is green like the feel of grass? You would have to say, not really. I don't really know how to describe to you what blue and red and green are unless you have eyes to see, right? You, you gotta experience it. You, you, you have to sense it. I, I can't... I can't really give it to you any other way. And part of, of your life in Jesus is that you need to know that God loves you, that Jesus cared for you, that Jesus died for you, that you believe on him. Yes, but it's supposed to go deeper than that. It's supposed to go to an experiential level. And, and I'm not talking about just emotions. It is emotions, but it's more than that and deeper than that. It's, it's what the Bible calls the heart. It's supposed to go beyond that. And you're supposed to taste and to see and to feel and to touch the festival joy and what Jesus wants to bring to you. You say, what, what does this mean for me? Here's what it means for me. And this has been the most profound thing through this study and has been the prayer of my heart for a couple of weeks. And I hope it will be the prayer of your heart for the next couple of weeks or months even. And it's don't settle for bread and water. Don't settle for bread and water. Go for the wine and go for the festival joy. Jesus wants to give that to you. And so many times we settle for less with Jesus. 
We settle for, you know what, I have a relationship with him. He saved me from my sin. I read my Bible. I pray. I, kinda, I go through the motions. It's this. and you know, Lord, give me this. Give me this. Give me that. Bless them. Help them. I, I, I do that sort of stuff. But tell him, I want to taste. I want to see. I want to know. I want to feel your love, your graciousness, your goodness. I want to experience that deep down inside. I don't want to be... I don't want to be normal or average or lackluster or just kind of going through the motions of my Christian life. I want something more in my heart. And he wants to give it to you is, is part of the point of this. He's the one that brings the festival joy. He's the one that's going to move all of creation that way eventually. So experience it now. Isaac Watts in his, in his hymn, the, the Hill of Zion Yields, wrote these words, which is so fitting. He said, the Hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly fields or walk the golden streets. What is he saying? Life in Jesus is supposed to give you the sweets, the good stuff, the joy, the, the festival. It's supposed to give you that now. In heaven, yes, one day. And we, that's awesome. We celebrate that. But even now, it's supposed to be part of your life. And I don't even know how to accurately describe that. All I know is personally, I went through a lot of Christianity and a lot of church and a lot of praying, and a lot of stuff until I got to my college years, 18, 19, 20, and really started to understand what it meant to taste and see what God, that God was good. And I wish... I wish that I could somehow put it right in front of you and help you see how good he is and can be. But that has to be pursued. That's not something that just kind of happens magically. It's something that Paul knew. And Paul said, I'll leave everything behind that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want that. I crave that. And I hope that part of this would produce what it has reproduced inside of me, that you would just say, Jesus, I want the good stuff. Jesus, I want, I don't want to live on bread and water. I want festival joy. I want it to be real in my heart. I want to taste. I want to see. I want to touch. I want to know. I hope that that's inside of you. True too. I got to keep moving. Jesus is the true and the better bridegroom. Now, if you understand this, imagery that the Bible uses for our relationship with Jesus, you'll start to unlock a lot of different passages. So for example, the Old Testament calls God, Jehovah, the, the bridegroom on a number of occasions. You find inside of the gospels that people will come to Jesus with questions or with comments and they don't make sense unless you get this. You find that the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, the Pharisees fast all the time. Why aren't your disciples fast? Why, why aren't they skipping meals and, and, and going through this. And you know what Jesus' response to them is? Why my disciples don't fast? He said, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? When the groom meets the bride, it ain't time for mourning and fasting. It's time for celebration and feast. That's what you're seeing in John 2. It's time to have a good time. And he tells them, eventually it'll be time for that, but not right now. The bridegroom's here. I'm here. You find in the next chapter, and we'll look at this uh, next week, or not next week, but in a few weeks, John chapter number three, John the Baptist shows back up, and John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. I told you I wasn't the Christ. He, he is the bridegroom, and he is here for the bride. I am the friend of the bridegroom, and I stand, and I listen to him, and I greatly rejoice that the bridegroom has met the bride. What is John saying? 
He's the groom. He's after a bride. I'm just the best man sitting here saying, this is awesome. Way to go, Jesus. This is fantastic. Look at the bridegroom. What is happening inside of this text here in John 2? A wedding, right? Jesus is sitting at the wedding. Now think culturally for a moment. Jesus is 30-ish. Jesus is single. These, these, this time, once you're done with puberty, you're getting married. 14, 15, 16, you're being married. So Jesus is double the age of a normal male who got married. You didn't live in, in, in a single life. That was very rare in these days. You think Jesus, people ever walked up to Jesus, Jesus, when, you see her? I saw her over at temple. She's, you can marry her. You think that happened to Jesus? You know it did. It had to have. You think people pressured him or talked to him or why aren't you getting married, had questions, all that sort of stuff? Absolutely. I don't have a text to prove that, but it had to have. Here's Jesus as a single married age man sitting at a wedding. Now you tell me, what do single people who are ready to be married and they sit at weddings think about? Getting married, right? They think about their own wedding, do they not? Sometimes with sadness, and why has this happened to me? I'm happy for them, but I wish it was me. And I wish it, sometimes it, it's, it's, you know, building the picture of what it was. It, it's, that's what you do. You can't help it. And you find that Jesus is doing the exact same thing. You say, well, I don't see that in here. I'll prove it to you. Before I do, let me tell you one more point. Jewish culture, there were steps to weddings. Dowry, prepare a place, receive bride, feast. Dowry is the price that was paid to secure a bride. It was similar to engagement, but far more legally binding. I'm going to literally pay her father, whatever, this many chickens, this many cows, whatever it was, for, for her. And then I'll go prepare a place, and then I'll come back and get her, and take her with me to my hometown, and then we will begin the festival. So this is all taking place. And now Jesus is sitting here. His mother approaches him and says, Jesus, we've ran out of wine. And look at this, look at this conversation that is almost ominous in verses three and four. Jesus, they have no wine. Verse four, Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. What does that mean? Right? That's the key to the whole text, honestly. What does that mean? First of all, woman was a normal title. It wasn't nearly as derogatory as we would use it nowadays. Now if you use woman as woman, you know, if Jesus is on the cross and he calls his mom woman while he's dying on the cross. It's just, it's just a title. Uh, it, it's a little less endearing than mother or mom, honestly. Uh, but it's, it's, it's something that was just generally used. So don't get tripped up by that. But he does, he does say this, what have I to do with thee? And, and he more or less brushes her off, honestly. It's, it's, what's this to me? What do you want from me? What, what do you want me to do about this? And then he says, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, thankfully, the, and this is a great rule as you study your own Bible to know, the best interpreter of the Bible is always the Bible itself. So anytime you see this phrase used in the Gospel of John, mine hour, it is always, without exception, referring to the death of Jesus is referring to his crucifixion. I used to think that Jesus was saying, mom, it's not time for me to begin public ministry. I don't, I'm not gonna do a miracle. But then he does a miracle. And I don't think Jesus relates to his mother the way that we relate to our mother. Where mom, you know, kind of banters at you and no, mom, no, no. Mom, no, no, I'm not, okay. I, I don't think Jesus is doing that with his mom here. Jesus tells his mom, he brushes her off. Mom, what do you want from me? 
It's not time for me to die. Okay, that's clearer, but what? That's weird, isn't it? Mom, what do you want from me? It's not time to die. It's not weird if you, if you understand that Jesus is the bridegroom and you understand a first century wedding. What is the death of Jesus if you use the word picture of a wedding? It's the dowry. The death of Jesus is the price that will be paid to secure his bride. Correct? Absolutely. It is the price that will be paid to secure his bride. This is why Jesus can come to John 14 right before, the, it's two days-ish before he's going to die. And his disciples are troubled. And Jesus says, don't be troubled. Yeah, I'm going to die, but I'm going to go prepare a place. And you can bet if I go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again and receive you so that where I am, you may be also. In my father's house are many mansions. I go and the way you know, what, what is he saying? I'm going to go secure the price. I'm going to pay the dowry and I'm going to leave for a little bit, but you can bank on it. I'm coming back for you and you're my bride and I'm going to bring you back home with me is what he's saying. This is Jesus sitting at a wedding, thinking of his future bride and his future wedding. And mom comes to him with a task and with, with here's what we need, the wine for this. And Jesus, in the midst of, of thinking this and marinating on this and stewing on this, his natural reaction is, is, is mom, what do you want? It's, 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 uh, it's, I haven't secured the bride yet, is, is kind of what's going through his heart. Now, we'll unpack this a bit more in a moment, but think about what this means. If, if it's true, and it is, that Jesus is the bridegroom and you're the bride, this is, is beautiful. Like, this is profound. Understand he's the bridegroom. Understand you biblically are the bride. That's why Ephesians 5 will tell you that Christ loved his church. And husbands should love their wives as Christ did that. And that we as a church will be presented to him as a bride, a glorious church, without spot, without wrinkle, meaning, you know, great attire and this, this wedding festivity. This is why the end of the Bible, Revelation, talks about the marriage feast of the Lamb that will usher us in. And there will be this kind of, uh, this, this fulfillment of the wedding and this feast that will ultimately one day come. That all of this is beautiful imagery laced throughout Scripture. But what this means, if you're the bride, how does the groom feel about his bride? You have to know this. How does Jesus feel about you? That's a valid question that many people never wrestle with. How does God feel about you? How does Jesus feel about you? The same way a groom feels about his bride. What does a groom want to do? Give her the world. What does a groom want to do? Protect her. Provide for her. Give her intense, fierce love. That's what a groom wants to do for his bride, right? So you have to know that the heart of Jesus to you is, I want to give you the world. I want to protect you. I want to provide for you. I love you with a fierce love that will not go away. I know the worst of you, but I still love you unconditionally. That all of that is in Jesus, and you have to see him that way. And if you, and if you would kind of get that and wrap your head around that, you would get what Paul oftentimes told his audience when he told them, I want you to get the breadth and the height and the width and the depth and the, and, and the extent of the love of Jesus for us. You have to know that you're valuable. You have to know that if he wants to provide for you and he wants to give you the world, what will stop him? He's God. Nothing. What does this mean for you? What do you have to be afraid of? Why are you navigating through life? If you know Jesus and he's your savior, why are you navigating through life with such a lack of peace and so skittish and so scared all the time? 
that something's going to happen and this is going to happen and all the anxiety that bubbles up inside of us. If, you, if this is true and you get that he's the bridegroom, you can know that you can rest in him. You can know that he loves you and he cares for you and you can, you can sit back and relax in the relationship. You can know that what he wants to give to you is joy and love and affection and that's supposed to be close and sweet and real. Don't run from that. Embrace that. See Jesus that way. Know that he's that way. Truth number three. Jesus allows the one who has fallen short to take credit for what he has done. Oh, I'm going to get happy about this. You, verses 9 and 10. Jesus provides 120 to 150 gallons of wine. They bring it to the governor of the feast. And the governor of the feast says, man, that's good, but he doesn't know where it came from. The text goes out of its way to make it abundantly clear. He don't know where it came from, but the servants know where it came from. So upon him not knowing where it comes from, he calls the groom over and says, groom, way to go, man. Most people leave this stuff or have it at the beginning and there's, you know, trash at the end. This is absolutely fantastic. And he gives the groom credit for what Jesus has done. And Jesus doesn't step in and say, time out. I did that. That, that was all me. Stop, stop, stop praising him up. Stop giving him credit. No, 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 that was me. Now, that's what it means to be a Christian, literally, at bottom shelf. You get credit when you have fallen short and messed up. You get credit for what Jesus has done. Now, if you get that, you don't, you don't, you don't move through your relationship with God with anxiety. If, if you miss that, you will be so anxious about God. You will constantly wonder, have I done enough? Have I measured up? Have I said enough prayers? Have I gone to church enough? Did I tell enough lies? Did I tell enough truth? Did my good outweigh my bad? Did, did I confess enough? Our fathers, how Mary's? Did I, did I go through the motions enough? Your life will be filled with anxiety and what? I don't know if I've done it enough. I don't know if I'm half full. I don't know if I'm empty. I don't know if I'm full to the brim. But when you understand what this is saying, that true Christianity, the good news of Jesus, the gospel is, it's, it's not that you need to top off. It's not that I got some, but I need Jesus to fill me up just a little bit more. It's that I'm empty. I'm broke. I'm out. Like, I got nothing left, and I need someone else to provide this for me. And he comes and provides what you have a lack of and you cannot provide for yourself. And then you get the credit for it. That's the gospel. That, that is in a beautiful, beautiful way an understanding of what it means to come to Jesus. Some of you have gone through religious motions. I, this was my story. I went through a lot of religious motions, a lot of church, a lot of uh, communion, Eucharist, baptized, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. But I did not understand this. And then I ultimately got to a point where I needed to pray a saving prayer. And I needed to understand that I had nothing and I was broke and I was out. But Jesus would provide it all and give me credit for it. And I needed to call out to him and say, Jesus, give me credit for what you've done. You paid the price. You died for my sins. You rose. I don't got anything to offer here, but I'm, I'm, I'm calling out to you. That saving faith, that's what some of you need to do, that you've been coming maybe to our church or some church, you've been studying, you've been learning a bit, and, and you're starting to understand it, and it's time that you just, you just need to step over the line. You need to call out and say, Jesus, I trust you, I believe in you. And to see yourself the way that it really is, that there's, there's a nothing you have to offer to get the job done. It's all him, it's all him. This is why Romans will tell us that we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And because of that sin, 
We have a payment of death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. If you've never done that and just accepted what he's done for you and put your faith in him, oh, please do. He loves you. He wants to give you joy. He doesn't want you to worry about and be anxious all the time about if you've done enough or if you've earned enough or if you're going to be good enough to get to heaven or not or how much do I have to burn off in purgatory, all the rest of it. That's not the way it works. It's just not. Call out and ask him for it. Truth four, Jesus cares about the little things. Anyone else read this and think, doesn't this seem a little bit unworthy of Jesus to use his power for like a catering disaster? Like, you know, heal somebody, raise somebody from the dead, give somebody, you know, some, some food because they're starving, but you're at, a, you're at a feast and a festival and you use your power for this? Not if you understand who Jesus is. If you get that he wants to give you festival joy, if you get that he's the bridegroom, then you understand that this makes complete sense. When you love somebody, you care about everything in their life. When you love somebody, you care about what's hurting them, you care about what's bothering them, you care about what's weighing in on their heart, you care about their practical needs, you don't care about just the big things, you care about the little things, right? You care and you're involved and you're there and the fact that he's the bridegroom and he loves his bride teaches us, what this story teaches us is that he does care about it all. Don't think that it's a bad use of his divine power or his precious time to go to him and to bring the little things to him. It's not. Go to him and give him everything that ails you. Put all of your care upon him. That's what Peter says. Paul will tell us to pray without ceasing. How do I do that if I only pray about the big stuff and I don't give him the little stuff? He cares. It's, it's not a chore to him. He's not distant. It's not, it's not, don't bother me with that. I had a conversation with someone who's in the room right now. We had a conversation on Wednesday on how, before, before you understood Jesus and you came to faith in Jesus, how did you view Jesus? And they said, here's how I viewed God. Here's how I viewed Jesus. God was the CEO of a 40,000 employee company. And the only way you got him to pay attention to you is if you did something royally stupid. That's who God was. He's, he's, he got too, too much else going on. You know, the little things in my life, figure it out, ask some friends, go to the priest, find someone else to help it out, but you don't take that to God. He's far too busy. He only notices if you do something, you know, if you just really mess up. That's sad. That's, and a lot of people see God that way. And it's not accurate. It's not accurate. It's not who Jesus is. It's not his heart. He cares about the little things, so go to him. Maybe, maybe you just need to reshape your paradigm and understand that you need to go to Jesus and have a relationship with him all the time. Truth five, I need to hurry. And you need this one. Oh, holy smokes, you need this one. <laughs> Jesus proves to be trustworthy even when he seems distant or cryptic. <laughs> Mary comes to Jesus with a reasonable request. It's reasonable. Jesus has the power to meet the need. Jesus, they're out. They need something. And Jesus, it seems like he brushes her off. It seems like he gives her a very cryptic response. And it seems like he sends the errand boys to go do chores that have nothing to do with the problem at hand. Now, we know the water's going to turn to wine, but they didn't know that. They had no idea. I mean, it seemed like Jesus could have got the pitchers that they were using to pour or something. Why are you going to the big old pots used for purification? Like this, this has nothing to do with the problem at hand, Jesus, right? 
But how does Mary respond to her credit in a great way? Later on in the gospel, she responds in a, in a pretty bad way and tries to pull Jesus away from ministry. But in this instance, she actually does a really good job. Mary responds in faith. Servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. In that moment where she came to him with the need and he brushed her off, at least it felt like it, gave her a cryptic response and seemed like he told them to do chores that had nothing to do with the real problem and a solution to the problem, Mary still responds in faith. Now, Mary doesn't know all of the all of the infinities that are trapped inside of Jesus that are yet to be revealed, but she knows better than anybody else what's there. She remembers the angel. She, re she remembers that she gave birth as a virgin. It's been 30 years, but, but she knows more than anybody else who Jesus is, and she didn't respond with, Jesus, I brought you in this world, I'll take you out of this world. <laughs> of course, she didn't bring him into the world, right? But that's not Mary's response. She didn't find a wooden spoon and start chasing him around. She, she, Jesus, Jesus, took care of this. That's, that's not a response at all. She, I mean, what would you do in that, in that moment? You got to know that because those moments are coming if they haven't come already. Like this is your Christian life. You're going to go to God. Okay, he cares about the little things. I'm going to cast all my care upon him. I'm going to take him my problems. And I'm going to take him all this and what ails me. I'm going to pour it out to him. I'm going to give it to him. And then you're going to get a response that seems weird. Then it's going to seem like he brushed you off and he didn't give you an answer. Then it's going to feel like he asked you to do things that have nothing to do with what you perceive the problem to be. And you're going to feel that way a lot. But know that you can trust him. And in the end, he knows exactly what he's doing. In the end, this is going to work out beautifully. And Mary knows this, and she trusts Jesus and says, do what they have, even in a heart of faith, even in a tough time where she doesn't get the exact response that she would have hoped for. Jesus isn't gushing with optimism and joy when she walks up to him. His response is a brush off, but she still responds with faith. And you've, you've got to know that he's trustworthy. You've got to know when those moments come, you, you, can't, you won't be able to deal with it otherwise. You won't be able to do what he tells you to do when you feel like it's, it's completely an exercise in futility. Why are you asking me to fill 120 gallons in a pot? This is, I need wine. This, what are you doing? But that's going to come. It's going to come and trust him. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. He will work it out. Obey, follow, have faith if he wasn't God in the flesh and if what John had already written to us wasn't true, then you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any legs to stand on. You couldn't trust him, but you can because he's Jesus. Lastly, Jesus deals with the present by looking to the future. Oh, what a lesson to learn. What an example to follow. Here is Jesus in the present moment of the festivity and the joy and the wedding happening around him. And what's, what's he thinking about? is death. Paying the price for his bride. My hour hasn't come yet. It's not time for me to die. Edmund Clowney, who preached a sermon on this text, said it, I think, best. Jesus sat amidst all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow, so that you and I can sit amidst all the sorrow, sipping the coming joy. <laughs> In the midst of happiness, Jesus is sad so that we in the midst of sorrow can handle it and be happy and joyous. How do you have stability when tough times come? 
when the news isn't what you want, when the, when the death comes to the family member, when the, when the health fades, when the finances begin to crumble, when the relationship dissipates, when all, how do you handle that? You got to know that you sit in that sorrow and you sip some coming joy. You got to have a future perspective to know what's coming in Jesus. This is why when we take communion, you know what communion is when we take it? And around here we do it uh, on a monthly basis. Uh, normally on Sunday night, here a couple weeks we'll do it on Sunday night. Uh, in April we'll do it on our Good Friday service. May will be Sunday night. June will be Sunday morning. We're going to switch that up a bit this year and get that more in the rotation. But you know what we do when we take communion? It's an hors d'oeuvre. It is, it is a taste of what is to come. It is us remembering, it is us reflecting, but it is also us looking at what is going to happen one day when the bridegroom comes for his bride and we understand that all of the universe is ushered towards a feast and towards a festival, that we, we sip on that and we love that. That's what Paul said. He said that his affliction and his problems and his tribulation was light and momentary. And the reason it was light and momentary is because he looked to the future and he saw a glory that was not worthy to be compared with this current problem. That I look forward and I see what is happening and it minimizes this and it helps me get through this. This is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What's thy kingdom come? Bring it on. Come on. I look forward to the day when there's peace that's pervasive and there's no more war and there's no more fighting. I look forward to the day when the tears are wiped away. I look forward to the day when there's health and when there's, when there's stability. I look forward to the day when I'm with Jesus forever. I look forward to that and I crave that and I want that. So bring it on. Thy kingdom come. Here's Jesus in the midst of happiness thinking about the sorrow so that you and I in our sorrow can sit in happiness. I'll apply this to marital life and I'll be done. I think this is a fair application. The majority of the room this morning that sits here is not living in a marriage relationship where I am fulfilled and I am cloud nine. And I don't mean to be pessimistic, but the majority of the room is not that way. The majority of the room is I'm single and I wish I was married. I'm divorced and never thought I would end in divorce and I hate it. I'm widowed and I miss them desperately. I'm married and it's not super fulfilling and we got a ways to go and we're not firing all cylinders. Now there are some that would say, hey, marriage is, is going great right now, best it's ever been. But the majority of the room undoubtedly is in a place of, I don't know, you can call it sorrow if you want. A place where it's different than what you would want. It's, it's, it's not the dream come true. How do you get through that? Or things like it. You gotta, you gotta look to Jesus. You gotta have, even in marriage, you gotta look forward to the day where the groom comes for his bride and loves her with a fierce love that will never stop and will never end and cares for her and cherishes her and provides for her for eternity and loves her with all that he has. You gotta look forward to that and know that, that really the achings of your heart and the longings of your heart are not going to be fulfilled in this life fully and completely, that that's really going to be fulfilled in Jesus one day and to look forward to that and have a future look and a, what the Bible calls a hope, a rock-ribbed assurance, that what he said will happen will in fact happen and I can bank on that and I can, I can just sip some of that coming joy and that will help me get through today and that will help me push through some of the pain and some of the sorrow. I, I entered this with verse 11. The point of this text is Jesus' inauguration. 
It's, it's him giving you the essence of what his ministry is all about. The point of this text is that he manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. Do you see how, how this, just those 12 verses, that story manifests the glory of God? How glorious that he would set his affection on us. How glorious that he would pay the price for us. How glorious that he would bring deep, real, satisfying joy to us. How glorious that he would offer us credit for what we've done, what we have not done because we're empty. How glorious that he loves you and cares about you in the big and the little things. How glorious that he's always trustworthy. How glorious that his promises are so bright and so awesome and so real that they stabilize us even in the most painful of experiences. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. And I hope that you, if you don't know Jesus, I hope that you will put your faith in him and say, Jesus, I'm empty. Give me credit for what you've done. I believe on you. If you, if you do believe on him, I pray that what happened with the disciples, they believed, but they believed more in a deeper, in a fuller way. It reinforced their faith. I pray that this does for your heart what is done for mine, that you this week say, Lord, I want more. I want more out of my relationship with you. I don't want bread and water. I want to settle for the, I've, give me the good stuff. Make it real. I want to taste. I want to see. I want to know. I want to feel. Oh, I hope that's your prayer.